Hello and welcome to Over My Dead Pod, episode 22. This is your host for the day, Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And we're going to jump right into today's episode. Um, This is the death of Kathleen Peterson and the case of Michael Peterson. So this one hits a little close to home, I will say. Uh, This is Kate speaking. I was originally born in Winston-Salem, or I grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, And this story takes place in 2001 in Durham, North Carolina. So just a little bit down the street, not too far. But before I begin, I want to ask you ladies, if you guys have seen on Netflix, the staircase, which is based around this court case. Of course. course. So that's what I was interested in. I was like, before this all started today, I was telling the girls that you guys have probably seen the story or heard it. Um, I would be shocked if you haven't, but this is not really a popular case in general. So I'm very interested to see like what the audience thinks afterwards, but I will say there is a show on Netflix or a docu-series on Netflix. It's 13 episodes. It's very, it'll give you conflicting opinions on what you end up deciding about the case. I personally wanted to unpack the story because there's a lot of things that the Netflix show didn't cover. I personally think it was a little bit biased. The husband in the show, Michael Peterson, he had a really big part in getting the Netflix story out there. He was the one that helped produce it, actually. And then I found out a few days ago, I didn't know this, but he was dating the editor of the show the entire time. What? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So like while he's going through this court case, he was dating the editor of the show. You know what's crazier, Kate, is I remember one of my first conversations with you in law school. We were talking about the show. We were like, oh, have you seen this? And that's how we started actually talking. That's how we bonded. Was over this case? Adorable. So this case also really highlights um, the missteps of the criminal justice system in the U.S. And it's apparent, especially in this case, that there's corruption and there's lying from the people that are supposed to be giving us the truth. Before I begin, I just wanted to say that this covers about 16 years of Michael Peterson's life. And I'll do my best to capture within this short episode. As I always say, listen to us speak about these cases and also do your own research. Make sure you know the whole story and aren't just coming off of biased opinions. Without further ado, this is the story of The Staircase. This story begins in the middle of the night around 2.40 a.m. on Sunday, December 9th, 2001. An emergency operator in Durham, North Carolina, receives a call from a local resident, Michael Peterson. Michael is a 58-year-old man. Vietnam veteran and a novelist. Here's the phone call. I hate when 911 operators are like, we'll figure it out. Like, so short and like, calm down, you know? Calm down, sir. Calm down. How many stairs? Like, I get asking if it's like, oh, a couple. maybe three, four steps up onto like a front porch. Right. And like he, he has time to count those. Yeah. He's like, uh, I don't know. Uh, 15, 17. I don't know. I mean, like, what do you in the back of my head? If somebody asked me how many stairs there are in my house, I'd be like 30. I don't know. Like it could be 12. I can't count. <laughs> I have no idea. I can't do math in my head. Just based off of that 911 call. What do you think right off the bat, not knowing any other details, Michael Peterson is calling 911 saying his wife's been in an accident and that she is not conscious, but breathing and that she's fallen down the stairs. I think it sounds pretty sincere and hectic, like as hectic as you would be if you saw that or walked in on that. Right. Like super out of breath, sounds scared, panic, can't really answer. Right. Just chaos. Appropriate response. Check. So if you weren't able to figure it out from the 911 call transcript, Michael Peterson's wife, whose name is Kathleen, has apparently fallen down the stairs and is breathing but isn't conscious. I think it's interesting to note the stairs. For those who haven't seen the documentary or haven't seen pictures of the Peterson's house itself, 
Michael on the phone said that he thought she fell down 15 to 20 stairs, but wasn't sure. It's not that many stairs that Kathleen ended up falling down, but we find that out later. And that's where a lot of confusion ends up in this case is that Kathleen actually didn't fall down that many steps as her husband, Michael states. And she was also walking up the stairs when this accident occurred, not down. She somehow fell backwards, which I'll explain more in depth later. The stairs itself were not straight up and down like a staircase. They were more in an L shape where you would walk up a few steps. There was a landing, you turn, and then you walk straight up for the rest of the steps. So while Michael was on the 911 call, he's standing in front of Kathleen, who is laying on the ground of the staircase on her back, surrounded in blood. But looking at the crime scene photos, you wouldn't immediately assume that she had fallen down the stairs. You would think that some type of horrific murder had just occurred. Just due to the amount of blood that was at the scene and the blood spatter that was all over the staircase walls. To describe the scene to everyone, Kathleen is almost completely out of the stairwell. She's laying on her back at the bottom of the staircase. Her lower body is laying on the ground floor. Her upper body is laying propped up on the first few steps of the staircase before it turns to go straight up. I mean, that does not look like a fall down the stairs immediately. I mean, of course, I've heard like seen this case before and watched the show. But I mean, that just that photo alone is pretty, pretty damning evidence to me. But and it's not just blood like pooling. Like it's it's splattered Mm -hmm. up the everywhere. Everywhere. Not just once, not one splatter. Like So her arms and hands are reached out in front of her body and her legs are spread out and open. So it's like she fell down the stairs and slid out of the staircase. The position that her body is in gives the appearance that she was walking down the staircase and fell down, sliding to the bottom. But in reality, she had been walking up the staircase when she fell. Her body somehow managed to turn and then slide down. I also want to note that Kathleen was also barefoot when this accident occurred, which makes it a little bit harder to understand how she fell backwards on the wooden stairs and slid facing outwards. Because when you think of falling on the staircase, especially wooden stairs, you would think socks or, you know, slippery shoes. So when emergency services enter the Peterson home and they find Kathleen at the bottom of the stairs, they pointed out several times that the amount of blood that was found at the scene, the stairs were covered in blood. The walls on the staircase were covered in blood and where Kathleen's body laid in a pool of blood. It's also notable that Kathleen herself was covered head to toe all the way down to the bottom of her bare feet. It was truly a terrific sign for or scene for someone that had just simply fallen down the stairs. One thing I do want to point out from Michael's 911 call is that he stated to the operator that Kathleen was still breathing. Now, people later on analyzed his voice in this call, and there are professional ways to determine whether someone's lying or not. And for Michael to state she's still breathing was something that was actually very uncommon to say in a moment of panic for how the fact would he know, you know, if Kathleen was unconscious at the time, which Michael says she is, he would have had to touch her or maneuver her body in order to see if his wife was still breathing. But minutes later, after Michael calls 911, the police show up. Now, the Peterson's house is a huge mansion. It's 10,000 square feet. It has a separate entrance hall from the front of the house. There are six bedrooms and two different staircases. There was a curved front staircase in the front and a servant's staircase, which is narrow, steep, and off to the side of the house. It was the servant's staircase that Kathleen fell down from. So police find at the bottom of the staircase, Michael's wife, as I've been describing to you, 48-year-old Kathleen Peterson. Michael states to the police that she was breathing just as recent as 10 minutes ago, but definitely is not breathing now. The police state that the Peterson house is now a crime scene and a scene that they will end up analyzing in great detail. Here are some of the details that police will go on to discover. There are 10,000 splatters of blood on the walls. Kathleen is lying in a large pool of blood, which when paramedics arrived, they were expecting still to be working with a breathing body, which is what Michael stated on the phone. But when they arrived, the blood was almost completely dried around Kathleen. Blood had soaked through the upper parts of Kathleen's cotton pants. There was also a bloody footprint from one of Michael's shoes lower down on the back part of one of the pant legs. And there was smeared blood and a pool of congealing blood under and around Kathleen's body. Congealing blood is when blood is exposed to the air and can clot outside of a 
deceased person. So Kathleen is found to have seven skull deep gashes on the back of her scalp. The skull itself is not fractured, but there's evidence of red neurons in the brain suggesting that Kathleen died of blood loss. If you die of blood loss, it takes about 90 minutes to two hours to occur. Some of the cartilage in Kathleen's neck had been fractured, and in one of her hands, she was holding a clump of her own hair, pine needles, and tiny microscopic feathers, which I will go into later. There is also a blood in the crotch area of the shorts that Michael Peterson was wearing, and it looks like his shorts had recently been splashed with water, almost to wash the blood off. Are they saying that she, because the blood was dried and clumped, was, are they saying that he didn't call 911 right when she fell or I'm not to get ahead. I don't want to get ahead of the story, but is that no. So that's, that's a big issue that this case actually, especially in the Netflix documentary, they don't go into that at all. So when I was doing my research and I found that the congealed blood takes 90 minutes to two hours to even like dry up and happen or someone dying from blood loss, it would take that amount of time for her to have passed away. They don't ever give an explanation for where Michael was for those two hours, which I will go into what happened that night before the accident. But it is very interesting to point out that Michael never states where he was for the given two hours that the police say it took Kathleen to pass away. When police spray luminol, a chemical that makes blood reminisce turn blue, on the kitchen floor of the Peterson house, they find what appears to be bloody footprints tracked in and then cleaned up, leading towards the sink and the washing machine. The evidence at the scene suggests to police that Michael killed his wife and that Kathleen did not die of an accidental fall down the stairs as her husband had stated. The police immediately name Michael as the primary suspect and arrest him on scene early that morning. So in the docuseries, The Staircase on Netflix, Michael Peterson gives his explanation of the events from that night. Michael is in his house and is telling his version of what happened when before he found his wife laying in a pool of blood. He very calmly explains to the camera that he and his wife had watched a movie the night before. It ended around 11 p.m. And then they both went outside to drink a glass of wine on the terrace. Then from there, they moved from the terrace to the pool area. I want to point out is a significant walk on their property. It's a pretty big garden to cross. And the house is also surrounded by a large wooded forest area. And in Michael's account, they walk past the trees and settle by the pool. Now, do bear in mind that it's super late in the night by this point. It's past midnight. And it's also December in North Carolina, probably around 40 degrees outside. When police came to the house to the crime scene, Michael was only in shorts and a t-shirt. Michael in the documentary goes on to say that after a while, Kathleen went inside because she quote unquote had a conference call in the morning and Kathleen was concerned about her work. Kathleen was the vice president at a company called Nortel, which is a huge tech company in Durham. And the company was under trouble at that time. That was the last time that Michael states he saw his wife alive. At this point in the docuseries, Michael pauses for a second and then states, oh, wait, she was alive when I found her at the bottom of the staircase, but barely. Meanwhile, there is no account for Michael between the hours of midnight and when the 911 call was made at 2.40 a.m. in the morning. The only thing Michael states is that he was outside by the pool smoking his pipe for these missing hours. At another point in the docuseries, Michael states that when Kathleen originally went inside, She was supposed to be making a drink for Michael. She never came back outside and she went in around midnight, which is a little suspicious because on my end, wouldn't you think like if your partner is supposed to be going inside and making you a drink and then they just never come back outside, I would probably go and check and see like, I'd be like, camera, where's my damn drink? Yeah, I'd be pretty mad. Okay. So we're going to take a small break from Kathleen Peterson's story and talk about one of Michael Peterson's family friends who was also found dead at the bottom of the staircase. So before Michael met his wife, Kathleen, in 1986, he lived in Germany with his first wife, Patricia Peterson. Patricia was an elementary school teacher at American military base in Germany, and the couple had two sons together, Clayton and Todd. And while overseas, Patricia and Michael befriended a woman named Elizabeth Ratliff. Elizabeth was the mother of two young girls whose husband was killed while on a military mission. 
But one morning in November, 1985, the Peterson's dear friend, Elizabeth was found dead at the bottom of a flight of stairs at her home. And the evening before she died, Michael had been at her home, helping her put her daughters, Margaret and Martha to bed. The Petersons and Elizabeth had been neighbors at this time. Elizabeth was originally thought to have died from falling down a staircase until, of course, years later, Kathleen Peterson was found dead in a very similar manner, 15 years later to be exact. Elizabeth's sister, Margaret, had heard of Kathleen's death, and she actually called the detective working on the case and asked if they were aware that the same thing had happened to her sister some years back. Back at the German crime scene, Elizabeth's body was found in a very similar situation to Kathleen Peterson. Elizabeth had had identical lacerations to the back of her head. She was found in a pool of blood at the bottom of her home staircase, which also happened to be in in an L shape. During the German police investigation, they determined that Elizabeth had accidentally died from a cerebral hemorrhage, which basically just means the bleeding of the brain. After Elizabeth Ratliff had passed away, Michael and his first wife, Patricia, adopted Elizabeth's two daughters and moved back to the U.S. with them which is just a little weird to me. I get, I get it. The kids no longer had any parents, but you know, the dad died in combat. The mom just died of uh, accident. They adopt the daughters and then they piece back out to the U S when Michael and Patricia's marriage began falling apart in the eighties, it was actually the two adopted daughters that were the ones that introduced Michael to his next wife, Kathleen. The two sisters were playmates with Kathleen's daughter at the time, Caitlin who lived down the street from them in Durham, North Carolina. In 1987, the families moved in together and became one big happy family. Michael Peterson, he is a former newspaper columnist, and he's also written several popular novels, including a novel called A Time of War, which was really big in the 1990s. It was a World World War II book. When talking about Kathleen after her death, Michael stated that he and Kathleen and their combined family had lived together for 14 wonderful years and never had any issues. He always described his relationship with his wife as picture perfect. Going back to Kathleen's story, she was pronounced dead in the early morning of Sunday, December 9th, 2001. And earlier in that evening, Michael said the couple had eaten dinner, watched a movie, and then sat out by the pool. He claimed that Kathleen went to bed while he stayed outside to smoke. Okayed by Michael, Michael's defense team claimed that the theory Kathleen had drank some wine, probably taken a Valium, and then tried to walk up the poorly lit servant stairwell in the home when she fell backwards, hit her head, and bled to death. When Detective Art Holland of the Durham police arrived at the Peterson home, the scene immediately struck him, struck him as suspicious. Detective Holland said Kathleen was splayed out on the floor. Her head was resting against the landing wood of the stairs. Police also noticed that a bottle of wine and two glasses were found on the kitchen counter, which police assumed in the moment that meant the couple had been drinking wine together the night before. Except police came to find out that later on, Kathleen's fingerprints weren't on either of the glasses. So when the medical examiner later checked in Kathleen's system, the blood alcohol content was so low that she would have passed a breath analyzer test if she had taken one. Wait, did she have any Valium in her system? Not from what we know. So that was just out of their ass. Okay. Yes. And they, I mean, they went to court with that as their defense. With no proof. Okay. Good strategy. This is a great, great story. It's a great story. So only a few days later, on December 13th, 2001, Kathleen Peterson was buried at the Maplewood Cemetery within a week of her passing. On December 18th, Michael Peterson, who had not yet been charged in his wife's death, hires a defense attorney named David Rudolph. DA Rudolph was considered to be one of the best that money could buy at the time. And Peterson, at the end of this case, would end up spending almost a million dollars on the legal work. On January 14th, 2002, Michael Peterson surrendered to police after a grand jury indicted him for first-degree murder. On February 18th, Kathleen's autopsy was released to the public, and in there, the medical examiner determined that Kathleen had been bludgeoned to death and had several deep lacerations on the back of her scalp. The blood around the victim at the time had been mostly dry, which means the victim, Kathleen, had been laying in the pool of her own blood for quite some time, not just the 10 minutes that Michael claimed when the police first arrived to the Peterson home. The district attorney, Jim Harden, said Kathleen had been laying there for around two hours. 
The state's blood splatter expert claimed that the blood droplets around the stairwell were made by the striking of a weapon, which in this case, they determined later on ended up being from a blow poke from the fireplace. I mean, you, I'm not even have an investigator and I can tell you that that's like trauma to her head, you know, and not falling down the stairs. You can just tell by looking at that. Everyone who's listening to the story needs to go and just look up the, a picture or your drawing of the back of Kathleen's head and the lacerations that they said were from falling down the stairs. It is like gnarly gashes all over the head surrounding the entire back of it. If you look at the photos of the stairs, there's nothing other than the stairs she would have hit her head on. Like there, that is actually really good to mention. There are no hand handrails on the stairs. It was a servant. So it was really narrow. So there's no hand handrails. So it's not like she hit multiple things, like bouncing her head back and forth, going down the stairs from where the blood started on the stairs to the bottom was I six steps. Maybe, maybe you, the stairs are wooden, I think, but if, even yeah. if you did, you would to make those gashes, which are parallel, not like horizontal. You'd have to go from the top of the stairs, hit every single stair sideways. In multiple directions. And only in the multiple back directions. Of your head. Like nothing in the, like, no, nothing yeah. else, you know, just the back of your head taking it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not biased or anything, but if you saw the lacerations on the back of Kathleen's head, a blow poke from a fireplace makes a little bit more sense as a weapon than not falling not- down the stairs. Just not even knowing the story, if you show me the picture of the blood splatter, I'd be like, oh yeah, somebody sat there for a long time. And most of the blood and where her body is, is like right around the corner and there's Mm -hmm. the two walls. There is no dents or indentations in the wall. Like, you know, my big old head would have like a hole would have been in the wall. Even if I fell down the stairs was not even like knocked unconscious. And if I like hit my head, there would be a dent. At the scene initially, there was no weapon found, which is really important to to point out. The blow poke was determined to be the weapon of choice later on by detectives. On May 10th, 2002, the district attorney, Jim Harden, presented the court with the autopsy of Elizabeth Ratliff from Germany. The reason why they brought Elizabeth's autopsy report in was because Michael was the last person to see Ratliff alive the night before her mysterious death down a staircase. Elizabeth's body was actually flown from Germany after her death to the U.S., where she was buried in a tomb in Bay City, Texas. So it was in the U.S. uh, for the majority of the time. At one point during the court case, they actually exhumed her body. But on October 29th, 2002, Caitlin Atwater, which is Kathleen's first daughter, files a wrongful death lawsuit against her stepfather, Michael, for $35 million. On February 18th, 2003... Elizabeth Ratliff's two daughters, Margaret and Martha, who are now Michael Peterson's adopted daughters, give the district attorneys permission to exhume their mother's body from Texas because they both thought at the time that digging up their mother's body, bringing it forward, having it exhumed would actually help clear their, uh, Michael's name, but that ends up not being the case. The North Carolina State Medical Examiner did another autopsy on Elizabeth Ratliff's body which reported that Elizabeth had died from blunt force trauma to the head and that her injuries were very close to those of Kathleen Peterson. In August of 2003, in court, they argued that Michael Peterson's motive in part was connected to his sexuality. The prosecutor believed that Kathleen at the time had found over 2,000 images of naked men on her husband's computer, plus an email exchange with a 26-year-old male escort who first contacted Michael four months before the murder, and Michael was planning on meeting up with. Between August 30th and September 5th, 2001, the escort exchanged about 20 vulgar emails with Michael. Prosecutors basically argued that his homosexual relations may have been a motive to kill his wife if she had confronted him after finding the photos in the emails. One of the big issues is that we have no proof that Kathleen ever did find out. When it was brought to court, you can see it in the docuseries, The Staircase on Netflix, Michael Peterson's family, like his children, the entire time believe he's innocent. And so like they're in court watching all this go down. And when all of this other stuff started popping up in court and the escorts being mentioned, like everyone is shocked because this is the first time they're hearing it. The court system did find out later on that Michael Peterson had deleted these pornographic photos and the escort emails after his wife had died which led the prosecutor's team to really narrow in on using the facts against Michael. 
another funny, not funny, but another thing to say is if you do go watch the documentary, they actually interview the escort in court. I didn't really go into that too much into what he said or anything like that, but he basically like, he was laughing the whole time, like making jokes to the jury, like just being a very like product. I don't even know how to describe it, but he was not serious whatsoever. Could have cared less that like, this could have been the reason why Michael killed his wife. He just acted super weird. It just a very childish like behavior. Okay. So here's one of the biggest pitfalls of the case, the forensics. There was a blood splatter analyst named Dwayne Deaver, who I call Dwayne Dummy, from the State Bureau of Investigations. Analyst Deaver was an 18-year veteran of the SBI, and he told the jury that Kathleen Peterson was hit at least three times in the back of the head with an object and that the back of her head also hit two wooden stairs. He said that based on the blood splatter on Michael's shorts and shoes, he had to have been standing directly over Kathleen when she was killed. And during the actual trial, while holding one of Michael's Converse sneakers in front of the jury, analyst Deaver stated that the source of blood at the time of the impact was above the shoes. He couldn't really say how high above the shoes it was, but he knew, in fact, it would be from above the shoe. They then proceeded to pull out state exhibit, exhibit number 72, which was a fireplace blow poke, which at that time, D.A. Hardin asked analyst Deaver if he had ever seen this before. And Deaver replied that he had seen the blowpoke when the Durham police detective, Art Holland, had showed it to him. Analyst Deaver said that Holland asked him if an instrument like this could be used to produce the stains that were on the wooden steps at the crime scene. Another similar blood stain was also found near Kathleen's left leg. Analyst Deaver said that he pressed the blowpoke into a bloody paper towel and then against a poster board, seeing that it could have left similar blood stain marks that were originally found at the crime scene. And while processing the scene on December 9th, 2001, analyst Deaver looked around for such a tool, but wasn't able to find anything. And in particular, he didn't find any fireplace tools in the house. But when Deaver went back on June 27th, 2002, to do more investigation, a fireplace set of tools was now in the house. At the end of the day, DA Harden raised the question to analyst Deaver on whether or not Deaver had reached a conclusion on what had happened to Kathleen on the early morning of December 9th, 2001. Deaver replied that he had. And this is when in court, analyst Deaver showed the jury how he believed an attacker from the bottom of the stairs had used a weapon to strike Kathleen, stating that Kathleen face down on the stairs was hit twice more, managed to stand up, bleeding heavily. Deaver went on to say that Kathleen's head forcibly then hit two steps as she fell backwards and someone then began cleaning up the scene. DA Harden and analyst Deaver then held up Michael's khaki shorts, the ones that Michael was wearing when the emergency responders showed up on the morning of December 9th. Deaver said that someone was trying to destroy or change blood stains on the front of Michael's shorts, but that the stains, quote unquote, were a textbook case of blood splatter from a beating. In another testimony during the trial, the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations forensic chemist testified about the analyst of blood found on the pair of Michael's khaki shorts. This chemist, Agent John Bender, testified that he was asked to analyze drops of blood found in the inside of the shorts. He stated that the blood droplets were wider on the inside of the shorts than the outside, suggesting that the drops of blood were applied from the, to the fabric from the inside. But he gave no explanation on why the prosecution or the defense to how the blood splatter could have found its way inside of Michael's shorts or what it might mean. But if you think about it, if blood splatter is more is is larger inside of someone's shorts than it is on the outside, you kind of put it together in your head that that they were probably standing over the victim or standing around the victim and when blood was going upwards. If blood was coming downwards, it would hit the outside of your clothes. But if it was upwards, it would hit the inside. It doesn't match with what he's saying that he didn't see any of it happen anyway. Why is there blood splatter on his pants? Like that doesn't it makes no sense. The other testimony in this case that was extremely important was that of the medical examiner and pathologist, Dr. Deborah Radish. Deborah was an associate state medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Kathleen. And she testified that Kathleen's injuries were not consistent with a fall down the stairs and that they were caused by some type of blunt object. Dr. Radish also stated that Kathleen at the time was wearing a sweatsuit and did not have skin underneath her fingernails that would suggest some type of struggle. 
The autopsy concluded that Kathleen died of several injuries to the back of her head, but before stating that the injuries were caused by a murder, police said that the death was suspicious because of the large amount of blood at the scene, which could be found at the front door, the sidewalk, and the stairwell where Kathleen was, and on Kathleen's husband, Michael, which is something I will say that the Netflix documentary didn't point out is that there was blood found in more places than just like the stairwell. At the end of the legal case in 2016, which this also occurred on the last few episodes of the Staircase series on Netflix, it was mentioned by the lawyers the idea of strangulation injuries that ended up being discovered in Kathleen's autopsy report, but never brought to court. You would think that this would have been a major point of evidence, but until then it had never been referenced by any of the medical professionals. In the autopsy, there was a mention of injuries to the thyroid, which would not have been possible to be caused by a fall, but instead could only be caused by some type of strangulation motion. Dr. Deborah Radish, the medical examiner, also got to perform the autopsy on Elizabeth Ratliff's exhumed body. And Dr. Radish said that Ratliff's death was inconsistent with a fall down the stairs because of the severity and number of lacerations found on the back of her head. Rather, the injuries were a direct result of blunt force trauma. Dr. Radish also stated that she believed Ratliff's injuries occurred while she was still alive, which goes against the whole original statement saying Ratliff had died falling down the stairs after having an aneurysm of some sort. Michael Peterson's trial ends on October 10th, 2003, and after four days of deliberation, the jury found Peterson guilty of the first-degree murder of his wife, Kathleen Peterson. He was then sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And all the way up to this point, and even to this day, Michael has maintained his innocence, stating that he had nothing to do with his wife's death and that he truly didn't believe the jury was going to read that sentence and that he was going to be convicted. He truly believed the entire time he would be set as not guilty. On January 16, 2004, the Supreme Court judge Orlando Hudson ruled in favor of daughter Caitlin Atwater and her wrongful death lawsuit, which means in this case, the jury also found Michael Peterson guilty. Two years later, in June of 2006, Michael Peterson files for bankruptcy after spending a ridiculous amount of money on his legal cases. Michael's legal team then begins to file motions stating that they believed Michael received an unfair trial and requested for a new trial because there was prejudice against him when it came to the sexuality stuff that was brought up in his court case. But on September 19, 2006, the three-judge North Carolina Court of Appeals panel rejected Peterson's argument that he did not receive a fair trial. They said as if they felt he was given a fair trial. In 2007, the courts rejected Peterson's appeal as well. But new information comes along in January of 2011 about none other than Dwayne Deaver, the SBI blood analyst. Dwayne had actually been fired after an audit showed he was negligent and dozen of tests that he had performed for the state came back as incorrect, stating that Deaver had misrepresented blood tests in over 34 different cases. But it wasn't just Deaver who misconducted the cases. It ended up being the entire team that he worked for. The whole bloodstain splatter analyst team was suspended in 2010 after an investigation found that more than 100 cases of misrepresentative blood test results between 1986 and 2002. Because of this new information about Dwayne Deaver and his misconduct, there were other cases that got convictions completely reversed. So there were tons of innocent people in prison for life because of this guy that ended up walking free. On February 15th, 2011, Michael Peterson files a motion for retrial based on the Dwayne Deaver termination. And shortly thereafter, Michael's conviction is overturned after eight years in prison. And Judge Hudson granted Michael Peterson a new trial, but places him under house arrest for the time being. The retrial is eventually rescheduled for May of 2017. But on February 7, 2017, news breaks that Michael Peterson, now 73 years old, pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter in his wife's death in exchange for a sentence of time served. He enters into what's called an Alfred plea, in which he acknowledges that the state has enough evidence to convict him, but still maintains his innocence. And with analyst Deaver's testimony obviously not admissible, the state decided that the best way to get justice in this case was to offer Peterson a deal to get him to at least plead guilty to something. So I'm not going to read all of it, but here is a snippet word for word 
from Michael Peterson's Alfred plea to the judge. Michael Peterson is innocent of the murder of Kathleen Peterson. From the beginning of the investigation into Ms. Peterson's death and throughout this now 15-year battle in the criminal justice system, Mr. Peterson has steadfastly maintained his innocence at all time. He continues to do it now. He did not kill Kathleen Peterson. He did not strike Kathleen Peterson, and he is not responsible for her death in any way. Despite his innocence, he was convicted of first-degree murder on October 2003 and sentenced to life in prison without parole. It was found that the Durham police had violated Mr. Peterson's constitutional rights and that prosecutors had engaged in upper arguments. They nevertheless found these fundamental errors to be harmless. His conviction was therefore affirmed. As a result, Mr. Peterson was in prison for more than eight years until Judge Hudson found in December of 2011, SBI Dwayne Deaver had committed perjury, which he did and granted Mr. Peterson a new trial. It has now been five years since that ruling. And this case began when Mr. Peterson was 58 years old. He is now 73. But most importantly, what the events of the last 15 years have shown Mr. Peterson is that the criminal justice system cannot be trusted to do justice. Law enforcement officers, prosecutors, and medical examiners do not necessarily search for the truth. Once they have adopted a theory of a person's guilt, a theory in this case which was caused by former SBI agent Dwayne Deaver, they ignore evidence that is inconsistent with the theory and twist facts to support their theory. This is literally why hundreds of people have been exonerated by DNA evidence over the last 15 years. It is also why Mr. Peterson believes that an Alfred plea, which resolves this matter while allowing him to maintain his innocence, is the best interest at this time. On February 24, 2017, Michael Peterson pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter and walked out of the courthouse a free man. His plea, although guilty, did not officially solve the mystery of Kathleen Peterson's death. That's the whole story. But there is one conspiracy theory that I do briefly want to go over. It's called the owl theory. You know I love a good conspiracy. So it was brought, I'll, t- I'll tell you about it. It was brought up by an attorney, but they turned it down to present it in court because they didn't want to like base everything off of this. But I'm not going to lie good, to you. See, I'm not going to lie in the back of my head, just a little bit, just a little bit. I was like, oh my God, this could have actually happened. But let me tell you why. In 2009, an attorney came forward with this new theory providing compelling evidence that Michael Peterson was in fact not responsible for his wife's death, but instead claimed that an owl was to blame. He found that a barred owl, which is a very common species of owl in Durham, North Carolina, attacked Kathleen on her way into her home on the early morning of December 9th. Being entangled in Kathleen's hair, causing serious injuries, including the removal of part of her scalp, and caused her to eventually fall down to her death down the stairs as she tried to reach help. You might also remember this from earlier in the story that when Kathleen was found by emergency services, they did in fact find her own hair, pine needles, and bird feathers clutched in her hand. Now, Kathleen's autopsy did find that she had seven deep lacerations on the back of her scalp. And when you do look at the lacerations, they seem to be consistent with being made by an owl's talons. But at the time, Michael's attorney did not want to risk his client's life on the argument that his wife was killed by an owl. So if they were to like go to another trial to this day, there have been a few stories literally to this day, 2023, there have been a few stories coming from Durham the Durham area in North Carolina of persons and dogs being attacked by barred owls. None of them succumb to their wombs, but it's not to say that this conspiracy theory isn't possible. Can I get on my little soapbox? Yeah, go Kylie. Quick poll. Holly, do you believe in the owl theory? Yes or no? No. Okay. So it's going to be me and Holly against Kate. No, it doesn't mean I believe in it. It's just, there is there, there was a slight possibility in the back of my head where I had to do a lot of research when this first came out that I was like, cause okay. If you watch the staircase on Netflix, it is super biased for Michael Peterson. Like mm-hmm. it shows him crying all the time. It gives him all this limelight. And like at the very end, you, you're like, Oh, did he do it? Like there, maybe he didn't do it. But the thing that actually made me believe it the most was the Elizabeth Ratliff story. Like having two identical women 
like dye the exact same manner, same lacerations. That was like the do it in for me. But the owl story, they they found feathers in her hand. No, I understand because like when I first saw the owl theory and compared, you know, like an owl talons to the cuts on her head, like it makes sense. Here's why I think it's not not true. Okay. So I don't know if you mentioned it. I honestly don't remember. She had something, I think it was her hyoid or her like thyroid cartilage was broken, which is evidence of strangulation. Also, I don't- never talked about in court, remember? That makes no sense. I feel like that's slam dunk against Michael. Anyways, somehow the owl gets in the house, right? Attacks her. She falls during the attack or something. Okay. And then dies from- the fall you know not necessarily from the owl directly where the fuck is the owl it flew back out i mean you know how birds like i don't know if you've ever had a bird in your house but those have. they, they have. don't get out like they don't leave you know you have no they to- get they freak out they freak out birds do not know where doors are they don't understand how doors work also um, going against my owl theory i'd also like to say if she was attacked by an owl don't you think michael would have heard her screaming oh for sure. sure like that's also, not a, that's not a silent that's not a silent death no also there's blood in places other than the stairs yeah my theory my conspiracy because they said you know the fire whatever pit tools they didn't find any in the house mm-hmm. i have no mm-hmm. idea but they have they have a giant mansion property do they have an outdoor fireplace where maybe that tool would be kept and it would have debris on it, like pine needles and bird feathers. Oh, mm-hmm. I never thought about that. She they has- probably do have an outdoor fireplace. I mean, it, the thing is massive. She's going in the house. He follows her in. He picks that up on the way and bashes her head in at the bottom of the stairs. Whatever gets rid of it outside, does whatever for two hours. That's my theory. Was the debris in her hand? Mm-hmm. So at some point, but they did say that like there were two major lacerations and then the rest probably happened when she was on the ground so he so someone michael um probably hit her mm-hmm. and she was like oh my god and she did fall backwards because remember she was going up the stairs and she grabs the back because anybody's reaction would be grab the back of your head and then when she goes backwards he's on the ground hitting her a few more oh, times yeah. it could yeah. also be from her grabbing whatever he was hitting her with True. to stop him and that's how she got this stuff in her hands too I always I wondered I mean, about the feathers and how that happened. Like they were in her hand. So when I heard the owl theory, I was like, oh my God. And what? come on, North Carolina, like the owls are everywhere. And by the way, barred owls are notoriously vicious. I think that it's totally plausible that an owl can kill, get in someone's house and kill them. But not in this case. But not here because he has blood splatter on him. The owls nowhere to be found. And yeah. I just, I don't see it. Like, I just don't see it happening here. And what I kind of think might have happened was maybe she was like strangled outside and she like is grabbing stuff around her. Like she's being strangled mm-hmm. and she grabs pine needles, whatever, whatever. And then he takes her inside, tries to stage that she fell down the stairs, ends up like hitting her with whatever it is would completely kill her you know but so on account of three of us here michael's guilty right yes my opinion yeah okay i believe it as well so to this day he is in north carolina he's still in durham but he lives in like a one bedroom apartment somewhere remember like he filed for bankruptcy he's now in his well now he's like late 70s he can't get a job anywhere so like he is solely living off of whatever his family gives him. But I will say that to this day, other than Caitlin Atwater, the rest of the family, his his children still believe that he's innocent. Yeah, I remember in the show, his family, his daughter, maybe, what did he have two daughters, like a stepdaughter or something? I remember the two girls being very, like, very on his side. If you watch the Netflix series, I can kind of see why they stand by him. He's pretty charismatic. But then you have to remember, and that's why I put it at the very beginning of the story, is that everything from the Netflix documentary turns out to be so biased because not only is he one of the directors of the Netflix series, but he's also dating the director. So like, yeah, it makes him look fantastic. I mean, there's just, there's so much evidence against him. 
And the whole Elizabeth Radcliffe Radliff thing just blew my mind. I guess it can be hard to think your dad could do something as like that, especially if there's been like no other indication. I right. mean, besides besides Elizabeth Radliff, but but like they at that time, the kids probably were- didn't know all the details of that story. It all came to light during the court case because even the two adopted daughters were like, "Yeah, exhume our mom's body. Like you won't find anything." And then they did the second autopsy, and they were like, "Oh." Well, and with that, ladies and gentlemen, is the death of Kathleen Peterson in the case of Michael Peterson, a.k.a. the story of the staircase. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening to this. And if you want even more information about the cases we talk about, be sure to check out our website, OverMyDeadPod.com. See you next week for Kylie's case. All right, ladies, are you ready to go into our overtime? I have two short stories. As of today, this morning, two inmates escaped a Tennessee jail by prying open the jail ceiling. Authorities are on the lookout for two Tennessee jail escapees that are considered dangerous to the public. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation announced on a Facebook post on Monday that they were assisting the Henry County Sheriff's Office in the search of two escaped inmates, Ronnie Sharp and Joshua Harris. The pair escaped the Henry County Jail by prying through the ceiling and opening a skylight on the roof. They are believed to also have stolen a white Chevy um, Ford-er truck that has a black dump bed um, on Highway 69, and so they're they're off and gone. But uh, Harris was serving time for a violation of sentence and has a history of evading arrest, theft, and burglary. And then Ronnie Sharp, the uh, the larger of the two, was in jail on numerous pending charges that included kidnapping, aggravated assault assault on an officer, evading arrest, theft of property, and burglary. So anybody in Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, I mean, Virginia, any like, you know, surrounding states, definitely keep an eye out for two sketchy looking men. That's all I'm going to say. How did they do that? I have no idea. Cartoon way to escape jail. Yeah. Like <laughs> through the ceiling. Crying, opening the ceiling, going through oh, a skylight. Why does a prison even have a skylight? I feel like why do prisons have skylights? That's what I thought when I read the story. I was like, wait a minute, what prisons or this was a jail. All right. So my second story is a woman allegedly shoots her Uber driver thinking that he was kidnapping her and taking her to Mexico. This happened over the weekend. A Kentucky woman has been accused of fatally shooting her West Texas Uber driver after mistakenly believing that she was being kidnapped and taken to Mexico. Phoebe Copas, 48 is remaining in jail on Sunday in El Paso, Texas, after being charged with a murder last week in the death of 52-year-old Daniel Pedra Garcia. Cops believe that Garcia was on Route 54 as he was driving her to a destination in El Paso's Mission Valley. Um, At some point during the drive, she thought she was being taken to Mexico and shot him, killing him. Now, the investigation so far supports nothing that says a kidnapping was taking place or that Pedro was veering from the destination on the Uber app. So the woman has been arrested and has been initially charged with aggravated assault, causing a seriously bodily injury, which is a second degree felony. But now they have done their research and changed it to murder. She is being held on a $1.5 million bond right now, but it it's just the story keeps going on and it like it's actually really sad because the uber driver was like a really hardworking man he had children he was out late she had been drinking this they were like halfway through their drive like to wherever she was going to her boyfriend's house she obviously like she had been drinking and this all occurred i mean if you think that you're getting kidnapped and that you're specifically going to mexico i would be terrified but for this to all like play out in her head i don't know like there had to have been some reason that she just like flipped a switch I read that she saw a street sign or something that said Juarez. Oh my God. She was like, like, she's taking me the wrong way. Taking me to Juarez, Mexico, which, you know, nearing El Paso, Texas, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of signs that that are in Spanish or have Spanish towns on them. I don't know if that directly correlates to, oh, I'm being kidnapped. Ladies. I have a dumb criminal. All right. All right. Laughing my ass off about this one. So in Indianapolis, Amber Baron was checking her mail late one night, you know, after work, and a man came up to her and pulled out a gun on her and telling her he wanted her to let her or let him into her house because he was going to rob her. So she lets him in because she doesn't want to get shot. And she gave him a hundred dollars in cash. 
Damien Boyce, wouldn't leave until she added him on Facebook. So she did. Before she can even call the police and tell them what happened, he started DMing her on Facebook, quote, damn, you was too pretty to rob. No. (laughs) Stop it. Oh my. Okay. First of all, that is so traumatizing. (laughs) He was too pretty to rob. Damn, you was too pretty to rob. And he asked her to like come chill with him and hang out. And he promised he was going to pay her back. Um, so obviously he got arrested because we have his oh, name and stuff right there. Um, so he's been arrested and charged and for also another armed robbery nearby. Oh, that's a good one, Kylie. That's a good one. All right, Holly. All right. So if you listen to our other overtimes, you've known that I've been trying to keep up with the Moscow, Idaho murder of the four college students, Haley Goncalves, Madison Mogan, and Zana Cronodal, and Ethan Chapin, who were killed in their home. If you don't know, recently Brian Koberger was arrested and he is now being charged with their murder. He has pled not guilty. They're considering seeking the death penalty in his trial. Which I assume, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I assumed whoever was going to be charged and convicted with these slayings because they were not even just regular murders. They were absolutely slayed in their beds. It was awful. Would be that they would try to go for the death penalty. What, that's just what's so baffling to me is that he is so like highly educated and he really is obviously very interested in true crime and stuff. And for him to plead not guilty and decide to go to court is, he, I mean, he knows what he's up against. I, I know that they found his DNA and it was a statistical match right. for the um, DNA found on the knife sheath, which was found in the apartment with mm-hmm. the murder victims. So it's very confusing. It's going to be interesting. I mean, we'll let him have his day in court. He Okay, he's either not going to say a single word at all and we'll never hear from him, like ever. Or he's going to go up there and be like, I'm getting rid of my lawyers. I'm doing my own case. Because he didn't even technically enter a plea at first. They had to enter it for him because he wouldn't speak. I think he's going the route of if I don't say anything, they can't use my words against me and they I can't be caught in a lie. Because I, I didn't mean the say smart anything. thing is to not talk. Yeah. The smart thing and, and to tell you the truth to your lawyer and just like let I, them do their from job. A, from a bad point of view to get the best deal you can because you're gonna I don't know. I mean, unless unless there's just some pivotal information yeah. waiting to reveal in court, like I don't know what he's doing here, but it is never a good idea to self-represent lawyers hire their own lawyers like don't do it don't don't do it don't do it no just don't do it don't commit a crime but if you happen to get a lawyer hire a lawyer (laughs) all right ladies how do i sign off do i now do something now do i now say something i'm gonna leave it in like just what you said and then just end it okay and with that is episode 22 of over my dead pod this is kate carter your host signing off for the day bye bye Bye. what do we do now no just kidding (laughs)